Welcome to another episode of Splash Considerations. My name is Justice Del Santos, and as you can tell by the title of this video, I don't know what I'm going to title it yet as I'm recording, but as you can tell from the title of this video, I'm not going to be talking about basketball. And as much as I as much as I do, as much as I would love to talk hoops after the last couple of days that we've had, we had phenomenal uh, game three, and then we had that with Lakers and the Nuggets. We had a phenomenal game four just tonight. We had a phenomenal game four with the Heat and uh, the Celtics. Tyler Hero really bursting onto the national stage, but just as as I woke up today. And I was planning, I was taking my notes, I was organizing the outline for what was going to be the regularly scheduled episode, talking about those aforementioned games. It didn't feel, it didn't feel appropriate to talk about those games. And if you've listened to uh, the podcast over the last couple months, you know that when it kind of, like, when when these incidents happen, I don't, I, I hope I'm not using the wrong language there, just, I, I just wanted to find, like, a general term, but uh, when the murder of George Floyd happened, occurred, I dedicated in a podcast just to it was eight minutes and forty six seconds of just silence. That was the episode for that day. I don't remember what we were supposed to do for that day. I think probably some labor negotiations with baseball, but it was one of those instances where I felt it was more appropriate to provide a space and acknowledge that that had happened instead of continuing on uh, business as usual and then uh, with the shooting of Jacob Blake and there there was more of an intersection there with the NBA because the NBA was at the forefront of postponing their games you had the Milwaukee Bucks who refused to come out of the locker room prior to their game versus the Orlando Magic back in the first round which honestly feels like <laughs> it feels like another lifetime at this point and now uh, unless you've kind of been living under a rock you will know that uh, Brianna Taylor she didn't she didn't get justice plain and simple Brianna Taylor uh, did not get justice uh, only one of the three officers involved in the murder of Brianna Taylor was charged and it wasn't even it wasn't even in regards to shooting her it was property damage that's basically what the charge was it wasn't even like to call that a slap on the wrist would be generous it was a light feather it was a it was barely a touch on the wrist it was i, I my gut instinct is to say the American criminal justice system failed Breonna Taylor. That's my gut instinct of what to say. 
because I, I would say in a in a bubble, in a vacuum, this is another case, or rather, if we're just looking at this isolated case, this is a case in which there was an atrocity committed. Breonna Taylor was murdered. And the people who were responsible for murdering her didn't receive any penalty. But that's in a that's in a bubble. That's if we look at this in a vacuum. And obviously we don't look at this in a vacuum. We look at this in the larger context of the dehumanization of black people in America. The American criminal justice system did not fail Breonna Taylor. Because that would imply that the American criminal justice system was meant to protect Breonna Taylor. And we have to understand that the American criminal justice system was not built to protect Breonna Taylor. It wasn't meant to protect Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Jacob Blake. So many, so many people. It, it's, it's hard. There, there's so many names coming to mind. Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner. There's so many names coming to mind. It, the, the American criminal justice system was not constructed with them in mind. It was not constructed with black men, uh, black women, black trans folks, non-conforming folks. It was not built for them. And we have to understand that this isn't a glitch. This isn't a bug. This is... This is pretty much exactly how the system was built. We need to understand that as a country. And I know that this is, it's been, this point in particular that I'm about to make has made its way around Twitter. Uh, but the Breonna Taylor decision came, I believe it was the the 63 year anniversary of the Emmett Till decision, and as as you know, the the men who murdered Emmett Till, they got off scot free too, and it gets into this larger point that we think of. We we'd say history is repeating itself. History is repeating itself. It's the same thing that happened, however many years later, and and. To a certain extent, you know, the logic of that is sound. It's it's literally something happening decades apart. History is repeating itself. But we always have to be mindful of the language we use. And I know that in, in a podcast, sometimes it's uh, there are words that I wish I could have substituted or swapped out. But I think we... We always have to be mindful of the language we use. And when we say history repeats itself, we have to understand that history implies a past. And a past implies that something is over. This is, it's history. It's, it's, it's no longer. But the thing about saying that history is repeating itself from Emmett Till to Breonna Taylor, 
or Emmett Till to George Floyd or Emmett Till to whoever name a name a black man who was or black woman or black trans folk who was murdered in the tw- in the 21st century if who didn't receive justice the language of using history repeats itself implies that again that there was a definite end that there was that when Emmett Till was murdered it was in an it was in an era that's so far gone when in reality we have people who are walking this earth who were around to remember the murder of Emmett Till and the people who killed him not receiving any punishment. What I'm trying to say is that history isn't repeating itself because history, the history never ended. There, there was never a point in this country in which as much as we kind of like to it's kind of instilled in us there was never just a a flip being switched and i know we kind of we look to the advances that black people uh, people of color indigenous people we look to those advances and we use that as a point where it's as if it's kind of night and day. It's the pre and the post. It's the post-civil rights movement. It's it's the pre and the post-civil rights movement. But that's not how... <laughs> that's not how it works. And we can go through a litany of things, a list, a litany of historic events that have occurred in the... in, in each decade since the civil rights movement that are testament to the fact that we are not living in a in a post-history world that we are still very much living this history and if you want to get super macro if you want to take a step back it's it's the continuation albeit in a different form of what black people have dealt with since the inception of this country when you have a country that's foundation is rooted in racism and in the same way that we just we talk about a generational trauma we also have to i think about the idea of generational ideologies if we think about it in that sense then we are living we're essentially living in a history that's never really there's there's never really a pre and post anything We talk about slavery, slavery being over. And yes, slavery as, as we know it ha- has been abolished. But that's as we know it. That's when we think about it in terms of plantations. I'm talking about it in, if we, but if we look to now, we will know that the prison industrial complex is real. It is most definitely a thing we look to if we if I'm going to cite the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, it's we see how so many various institutions work in conjunction with each other to disenfranchise black men and women. And I don't want to I don't want to imply that the the circumstances uh, that of black men and women in this country haven't changed at all in the last 400 years. I don't want to 
imply that at all. But what I do want to say is is that there is a clear and definite hierarchy that has been maintained in this country. And I was I remember reading a while ago there was a, it was a I think it was a Cornell West essay and I think it had to do with a democracy and he used a word that stuck out in my mind it was called pigmentocracy. I'm going to repeat that word again and just kind of let it sit. It's called pigmentocracy. And it's, quite frankly, it's the, it's the maintenance of that ideology that Cornel West is touching upon. And, and something that I just kind of want to mention really quick, just because I'm recording this at about 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, is the fact that... <laughs> It seems kind of trivial, but the fact that Tory Lanez released an album, 17-song album, after shooting Megan the Stallion, it's just a, another testament to how the black woman is the most disrespected. It's, it has historically been the most disrespected group of people in this country. Um... The thing is, I, I want I want to be surprised when these things happen. And what I mean by that is I want it to be the norm that black men and women and trans folk, when they are the subject of these violent acts, they do not die in vain. The people who murdered them are put in prison. They face their just due. I want that to become the norm. And so, by extension, when Breonna Taylor doesn't receive justice, I want to be... I don't even know if this is the appropriate way to phrase it. I just want it to be so rare of a thing that it's like, oh, wow, that's... That that's how could that happen? But on like honestly, it's not. When these things happen, it's it no it ceases. It has ceased to surprise me. When a black man, black woman, black trans folk, when they are murdered, and they don't receive justice it doesn't surprise me and the one the one moment that really sticks out in my mind and it was kind of my first exposure to systemic racism while having a what with having a conscious understanding what i mean by that is i kind of i was old enough to grasp what was happening at least to a certain extent. I'm not going to say I had all the knowledge that I do now, but to a certain extent, I could grasp what was happening. And that was uh, when George Zimmerman got off scot-free for murdering Trayvon Martin. I remember exactly where I was when I found out that 
Trayvon Martin had been murdered. And that was, as I mentioned, that was the first instance of a black person being murdered with my kind of conscious understanding of racism in the United States and having kind of the tools to understand kind of what would unfold. And I remember, I think it was, I want to say it was, it was 2014. I remember being in a hotel in San Diego with my parents. We were on a vacation. We turned on the TV and that's, it's the biggest news story. And is that George Zimmerman is, he's getting off scot-free. And while I did have somewhat of an under I think I was I wasn't even 15 yet I think I was like 13 or 14 while I did have somewhat of an understanding of systemic racism this was the incident where I had followed the news I had read the details and for me it was just one of those things where I'm like there's no there's no fucking way that he's gonna get out of this there's absolutely no way that that was my thought process i'm like there's absolutely no way and there was a way and i think for me that was that was the moment where where everything going forward ceased to surprise me and i remember my this was around the in the Trayvon Martin incident there's people kind of depending on who you ask there's different jumping off points to the inception of the Black Lives Matter movement but Trayvon Martin in conjunction uh, the other incident that really sticks out in my mind was uh, the murder of Michael Brown and it was around this time and it was a it was just a string of black men being murdered not receiving justice and so for me this was something i guess it was just instilled in me early like relatively early on before i even got to college that when these things happen and it just ceases to be a surprise it doesn't happen now with brianna taylor didn't happen a couple of years ago with Trayvon Martin. It didn't happen with Rodney King. It didn't happen with Emmett Till. And you can just keep going down the list. There's a quote, or there's just, a, rather not a quote, but just an idea that's been kind of percolating in my mind for the last couple days it's it's w.e.b du bois and it's it's the general sentiment that to be black in america is to be a problem and when you are deemed a problem they can come after your humanity they can come after your facial features, your lips, your nose, your eyes, your hair. They can undermine your humanity. To be black in America is 
to be a problem. And I'll, I'll say the... The one thing that's been on my mind for the last couple months... I'm, I'm currently 21. I'm 21. I turn 22 October 24th. And for sports fans, we kind of have that thing where it's like, oh, this is my insert name year of like a person who wore a number. So I'm 21. That would have been my Tim Duncan year. 22, I, I guess like my Clyde Draxler year. 23, that's Jordan. 24, that's Kobe. 25, that's Barry Bonds, et cetera, et cetera. But as my birthday approaches, and trust me, I'm not I'm not trying to make this into like a oh it's it's my birthday coming up. It's it's not one of those things. That number twenty two. It was for for some reason I just kept I kept looking at it or I just kept thinking about it. So and I I was wondering why. And so what popped up as I was just thinking about the age I was going to turn, it was this question, it was how old was, how old was Oscar Grant when he was murdered? January 1st, 2009. And so I looked it up, and he was 22. And I alluded to Trayvon Martin as being like that first example of when I had a semi-functionable understanding of systemic racism, but Oscar Grant was the first, it was the very first instance I remember of a black man being killed. And I, I was in the fifth grade. I was 10 years old. I was too young to understand the complexity of, I guess it, it feels so rudimentary, but just to understand the idea that just because someone kills another person does not automatically mean they're going to jail. I was too young to understand that, but I remember it constantly being in dialogue. I remember seeing the news about it, the newspapers. I think we even made some mention of it in my, my fifth grade class. I, I don't recall but and obviously with I, I'm from the Bay Area I'm from the East Bay and Oscar Grant was killed at the Fruitvale station in Oakland in the East Bay and and the reason I bring it up is as I turn 22 the the constant thought that I keep having is there's so much more that I want to do, that I want to accomplish, that I want to experience. And I'm only and I'm only going to be 22 and I have a lot of time. At least, you know, knock on wood. I'm going to I'm going to knock on wood. Um that's that's the idea is that I have I'm still young. I still have a lot of time left. 
to experience the things I want to experience, to do all the things that I want to do. And I haven't, in terms of those general goals, it's just, I've only been able to do like a fraction of them. Like, yeah, I, I just graduated college, which was one of those things that I wanted to accomplish in the grand scheme of my life. But, you know, I've yet to get a full-time job. I've yet to live on my, live by myself. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have grandkids. It's all of these various things that I've yet to have a chance to do. And then I, I think about Oscar Grant. And I, and I think about Oscar Grant in that same vein. In that Oscar Grant was only 22 years old. He had his entire life still ahead of him. There was so much that Oscar Grant didn't get to accomplish that he didn't get to do. And I don't have like a, a list of what Oscar Grant did and didn't do in his life, but I can say for a fact that it was only a, a fraction of whatever it could have been. And so I, I just keep thinking about just that idea is to, to have this kind of laundry list of things that I still want to do. And then to have, to have it just, just like that, it's gone. And it, it's it's one of those things I can't even really fathom. Just to to have so much left on the table. It's yeah. It's 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 hard to just imagine that. Like 80%, 75% of the things that I wanted to do in this life. Just, it's not going to happen. It's, it's an impossibility. The last thing that I, I kind of want to say in regards to this, because I, I'm aware of how much space that I'm taking. Well, there's there's actually two points that I want to make before I, I kind of wrap this up. I, I'm aware that as someone that isn't black, I, don't, I do not want to, you know, take up too much space when having these conversations. I believe that, you know, you got to have an understanding of when to take space, make space. And this is a, a circumstance in which I want to make space. But I will say... Two more things. This next this next point is it's kind of kind of at um, my uh, the Asian American uh, community as a whole. 
And I think I've, I've mentioned this so many times that I'm Filipino. I'm Filipino-American. I'm Asian-American. And to, to the Asian-American community, we have to have an understanding that we have an obligation. And, you know, what, when I was saying, you know, choose your language carefully, I'm, I'm trying to choose my language carefully here. We have an obligation to ride with the black community. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. Because the thing that we have to understand is that we as a community and you know, I, I do understand that Asian American is a very big umbrella. It's, it's a big term with a lot of various subsettings. But as a general, as a collective, we need to understand the ways in which we have been used to push down the black community. We need to understand that. Just to pr provide y'all with a little history, back in, I believe, 1968 or 1969, this was when the Third World Liberation Front strikes were happening at UC Berkeley and San Francisco State that resulted in the creation of ethnic studies at both of those universities. San Francisco State being the first university to have uh, an ethnic studies major as well as the third world college the thing that we have to understand is that at that time there were two articles that were written uh, one about chinese americans one about japanese americans that were praising both groups for essentially pulling themselves up by their bootstraps it's it's that whole line of work it's for being oh look at these Look at the the thesis of the pieces were like look at the look at the Chinese look at the Japanese look at they don't they don't protest they're they're the model minority that's that's what I'm trying to get at that this is the where the creation of the model minority myth comes into play it's these people like it's like the this group of people right here they're working hard they're not causing trouble they're and they're advancing economically ignoring the fact that that uh, Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans could immigrate to America under their own terms with some cash in hand while black people were forcibly brought to the United States. Completely ignoring that, but that's besides the point. And because of the model minority myth, and this is a myth, and it is a myth, and there's so much reading and there's so much work being done about the model minority myth if you want to read on it just look it up <laughs> google it but because of that we have essentially been used to push down the black community because now then and now it's we're looked at and it's like look at look at asian americans over there they're they're not protesting in the streets they're docile they're doing the work they're they're not causing a ruckus Look at the, but look at the the Latino community. Look at the Black community. Look at the, oh, they're they're doing X, Y, and Z. They're not 
they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And so we need to understand that context and knowing the ways in which we have been kind of used as a chess piece to push the black community down. We have an obligation to ride for the black community. And, and one thing, just one piece of history that I want to throw in here is back in, I think it was the 70s. Uh, yeah, it was the 70s. There was this, there's this thing called the International Hotel. And essentially, what the International Hotel was, for those of you who don't know, it was, an, it was a hotel building for older Filipino gentlemen. And some, there, there's a lot of details that I'm going to not be touching on, but basically, they wanted, them, they wanted the Filipinos to get up out of there. And on the front lines of kind of fighting for the life of the International Hotel was the Black Panther Party. This wasn't, this was not a Black Panther Party issue by, I guess, just, this was, this was an Asian issue. This was a Filipino issue, but it was the Black Panther Party that was there for the Filipino community and the, the Asian American community at large so that's that's the one point i want to bring up the other is when you're watching basketball over the next couple weeks i know that on twitter and on social media and in dialogue with our friends it's all jokes we like to we like to crack jokes we like to have fun we like to make fun you know, when someone has a when someone has a bad performance, we like to make fun of it. We like to clown them. That's just kind of how things go. But I think we just need to constantly remind ourselves that these are these aren't robots. These are real people, and the decision that was made regarding Breonna Taylor is weighing on all of them. In addition to the fact that they're just in a bubble, Gordon Hayward had to miss the birth of his child because he's in a bubble. And I just, me personally, I try as best as I can to just always keep in mind that these guys are human beings, that these are complex human beings with their own set of emotions, with their own set of experiences, with their own set of values. And sometimes that's, and I'll call myself out on this, it's, it's hard to remember that sometimes. There are times when it's hard to remember that these guys have a life outside the court because we're so enamored with ha with what happens on it. But just as you're watching basketball over the next however many weeks, just constantly try to remind yourself that this is something that's weighing on the minds of these players. You saw how Jamal Murray, after it was either game five or game six, uh, after his historic performance, just kind of when he was wearing shoes that had George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, how he just how that emotion came to the forefront. And if if it's hard to grasp the degree to which this can weigh on somebody, think about things that have happened 
in your life. And just kind of dig into that, dig into your mind. And think about an incident where something happened. You just something happened and you like it crushed you it it registered something that had a tangible physical feeling that you didn't want to do anything else you didn't want to eat you didn't want to drink water you didn't want to sleep you didn't want to work out you didn't want to work think about something in your life that has caused that feeling that has evoked that feeling of having no desire to do anything at all just think about it. Think, try to find something and now having something in mind imagine having to play a competitive game of basketball That game is not going to be the number one thing on your mind. Yes, it can pretend it, you know, it's going to vary by the person. But it's going to be something that's constantly in the back of your head. And you don't have to look far in sports history to think of moments where after a game, it's you kind of see this outpouring of emotion. I just mentioned it with Jamal Murray. Or if you want to think of Brett Favre playing a game after his uh, father passed. There are so many different instances that you can pick. So just as you watch over the next couple weeks, just keep these, uh, keep these things in mind. Keep in mind the mental strength that it takes to play a competitive game of basketball when for some of these guys and I don't know if they'll ever admit it right now or later but for some of these guys they just don't want to play I mean George Hill said it he said coming to the bubble was might have been a bad decision but that's gonna that's kind of all that I have um, checking on your friends Tell people you love that you love them. Take care of yourselves. Um, and I'm wishing uh, Brianna Taylor's family. I'm hoping that they can find the the strength needed to navigate through uh, these turbulent times. And I, I know that's putting it lightly, but I, I I hope the family can find strength. Uh, that's gonna do it for uh, today's episode. Uh, it wasn't my it wasn't a traditional episode. Uh, I'm well aware. Uh, I'll be back on. Monday or Tuesday to talk about uh, what's happened going forward from like today onwards uh, in the basketball world. 
uh, we'll get kind of back to the regularly scheduled program but today I just wanted to take this time use this <laughs> this small platform that I do have to as cheesy as it sounds speak on something that's bigger than basketball that's more important than bouncing a round ball I'll see y'all next week.